Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Lawrence Burns, Deputy Manager of the Elite Rated Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Thanks for joining us today, Lawrence. Great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, the Trust likes to invest in radical thinkers and their companies. Um, how can you tell if a radical thinker is onto something or literally just being too radical? Yeah, so um, I think you're totally right. We're looking for companies that you know, have the ability to change the world, um, disrupt old industries or create entirely new ones, um, because those are the companies that offer by far the greatest returns in investing. But they're also very radical ideas and radical propositions, particularly at the start. Um, yeah, I think the first thing would be that in our experience, um, yeah, the problem has really been the lack of radical companies and the lack of radical leaders rather than an abundance of them. And I think that's particularly true in public markets where there tends to be a, a favour towards the familiarity, the predictability and earnings now rather than investing to build for the future. Um, so yeah, but beyond that, I think in terms of our trying to go through and filter and find out you know, what are the very best sort of radical propositions out there, um, yeah, the first thing you're really looking for is, is there a large market opportunity? Are they trying to solve a big problem? Um, because we won't get all of these things right. And so where we're investing, we want to sort of feel there's an ability to make a 10, 15 or 20 times return on our money so that um, even as some of them inevitably don't work out, we only need one or two to really work um, to do our clients and our shareholders a good job. Um, and we I think the other things you look for in terms of that filtering, um, they tend to be things such as, you know, what external validation can you get of the business? Do they have um, large customer contracts um, with governments, with consumers, with other businesses? Um, and what sort of team have they built around them? Um, to give you one example, you know, a few weeks ago, I was in Germany visiting one of our holdings, Lilium. Um, Lilium make uh, electric flying uh, jets, effectively, or electric flying taxis. Uh, so that's a pretty radical proposition. Um, but I think what's helpful is, you know, they've had their work sort of peer-reviewed by um, the Whittle Laboratory in the UK that's sort of shown that the mathematics of what they're trying to do add up, albeit at the edge of current technologies today. Um, they've got, uh, you know, a chairman that um, was previously CEO of Airbus, uh, which I think adds huge credibility to what they're trying to do in electrifying aviation. And, you know, we met some of their engineers who have spent 30 years at places like Airbus and Rolls-Royce. And so they've left pretty comfy jobs to go and try and help them um, build something pretty radical. And I think that says a lot as to, um, you know, the quality of the proposition they're trying to do there. So I think it's just stuff like that that we're, we're looking for. Is the opportunity genuinely big enough? And, um, you know, do they have points of validation one can look for? Um, I wanted to touch on another example that's been uh, given recently is Tim Ellis, the CEO of Relativity Space and using 3D printers to make space rockets. Very interesting. Could you maybe tell us more about that, please? Yes. Yeah, so, so I suppose as we started with Radical, the, the Radical tagline here is um, Musk is looking to send the first people to Mars. Tim Ellis is looking to put um, the very first factory on Mars. Um, the immediate opportunities, you say, is, is 3D printing uh, space rockets, lowering the cost of access to space um, for satellites, for communication, for internet, and so on, which all have, I think, very meaningful impacts on the ground. But I think beyond that, you know, as they develop the 3D printing tools for rockets and as they get feedback and data, there's also that possibility that over time what they're building can be used um, to change how we manufacture um, broader things in other industries. I mean, aerospace beyond rockets um, is one example, but then in addition to that, it's well, 
you know, in the very long run, could a lot of the technology they're developing here be used more broadly to change how we manufacture things? And that becomes a very radical proposition. Even if it is starting with space rockets, it becomes more radical still. You mentioned Elon Musk there, and obviously another favourite in the portfolio is Tesla, which you backed early. Um, have you actually met the man himself? And what gave you the conviction in the company before everyone else? So, so I think in general terms, um, we're very privileged to be in a position where because of scale and long-term reputation as being genuine long-term holders, um, that we do get access to people um, like Musk. So Tom and James, I think I've met him several times in person. Um, I've met other founders in, in the Scottish Norwegian portfolio, such as Jack Maher of Alibaba. Um, and I think for us, it's almost a competitive advantage getting that access, um, getting to go and, and meet these people that are trying to change the world and getting um, to hear firsthand their vision and having it articulated to us. I think it puts us in a, in a privileged and advantaged position. In terms of Tesla, um, I think what helped in the early days was, um, yeah, a lot of this comes back to time horizon. We weren't trying to predict a particular year where Tesla would make profits or, or when EVs would take off, but we were looking at the underlying technologies and seeing the rapid improvements in, in battery technology and comparing that to the far more pedestrian improvements in the internal combustion engine. And that to us made it a question of um, when rather than if um, in terms of electric vehicles. And then I think beyond that, you know, we were quite taken by the breadth of Musk's vision. I mean, I think one of the comments he made to us was that, you know, a number of years ago, they had a small but growing chance of being you know, either a trillion dollars company or the world's most valuable company. And, and I think that showed us that there was someone that was really aiming to get that very radical potential in terms of where they could get to. Um, so I think it's really just uh, a willingness to back the individual and thinking long term about where the technological trends would take us. Another article I read from your colleagues recently started with the words, in half of coronary artery disease, the presenting symptom is death. It's certainly the intro that sort of grabs your attention and makes you read on. Um, and it was about the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Could you tell us more about the opportunities there? Yeah, so, yeah, I think if you look at the last 20 years, you've seen computer technology, um, which is improving at sort of exponential pace, really transform a number of industries. Um, mostly sort of retail, media, and advertising. And that's given rise to the, some of the consumer internet giants we have today. But I think what we're finding really exciting is we're seeing that computing technology and improvements being applied to a broader range of industries. And one of them in particular is healthcare. Um, you know, in many ways, the foundation of this, or one of the foundations of this, is the improvements in genomic sequencing. So genomic sequencing gives us huge amounts of biological data and insights. Um, in 1990, they tried to sequence the first human genome. Uh, it took them 13 years and cost $2.7 billion. Um, today, because of those improvements in processing and data storage, um, you can do the same thing for under $300 in about a day. And what we're seeing is companies that are having access to more data than ever before. Um, so one of our holdings, Recursion, for example, um, would tell us that humans understand about 2 to 3% of biology. So that, that's how far we've got in 70-odd you know, thousand years. Um, but they're now seeing that learning curve accelerate. And in, and in their case, you know, they're running millions of experiments. They're getting huge amounts of data. And then they're having machines go through that data and spot patterns. And that pattern, those patterns are in turn teaching them actually about biology. They're saying, look, there's certain processes and rules of biology 
um, that exists that we haven't really spotted before. We've been able with this huge amount of data and crawling through it with machine learning to really spot these at an incredible rate. And so I think in lots of different areas within healthcare, you're, you're seeing the pace of change and what's possible accelerate. Um, and healthcare has been an area where costs have only gone up one way, have only gone up over the last few decades. And so as we see those levels of improvements driven by technology which themselves are improving, I think that gives us real, um, real excitement as to opportunity set. And then I think on a more human level basis, um, as wonderful as it is to get um, packages delivered next day or same day by Amazon, I think if we can start curing some rather terrible diseases, um, that's even more profound. We, we've talked about three or four of the stocks um, so far. Could you maybe tell us about one in your portfolio that's your favourite and, and why? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I think we're always spoiled for choice with, with the different companies we own, but you know, per- perhaps keeping on to that theme of healthcare. Um, you know, Moderna is now our largest holding, and I think it embodies some of that um, you know, computing technology and digital mindset being applied in the healthcare space. I think what's interesting about it is you know, we're, we're all very well aware that um, you know, Moderna's played a leading role in helping us exit a global pandemic um, with its COVID vaccine based on mRNA technology. But I think where our interest really lies is that that experience with COVID has helped them validate their technology platform and scale up their infrastructure and gives them the opportunity to apply um, that technology platform to a far broader range um, of ailments. Um, and so for us, yeah, mRNA is about the ability to get the body itself, to instruct the body almost through human um, biological code to uh, build certain proteins that might be useful. And the breadth of application of that is truly tremendous. Um, yeah, and so it opens up all sorts of possibilities, you know, an actually effective flu vaccine. Um, most flu vaccines have an efficacy of 20 to 50%. But the idea that you could actually get one that was you know, in the 90%, I think, is really powerful. The idea you could combine that with COVID and other things as well, all in one single shot, I think is, is hugely attractive. But even beyond that, there's sort of possibilities that go into um, a more complete vaccine for HPV, um, for HIV, treatments for oncology. Um, you know, I think when we talk to Stefan Bansil, their CEO, um, you know, we really get the impression that for them, COVID was just them getting started. And I think that's really impressive that you, you have a company where solving the global pandemic was, was just the start. Um, I think that, again, speaks to both the radical mindset, but also the huge opportunity they face. I wanted to round off on the economy. Now, the trust has a growth style, and many people believe that with inflation and higher interest rates, growth strategies won't perform as well in the future. What do you have to say on that? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Interest rates and inflation matter, but I think to some extent when you're trying to invest in some of these radical propositions on a 10-year view, it matters more at the margin. Um, you know, if you look through things that have driven the historic performance of equity markets, the trust, you know, companies like Amazon, Tesla, or Tencent, you know, I don't think their success was enabled or predicated on interest rates and inflation. I think, again, they matter at the margin, but they don't determine success. Um, so to me, growth investing is, is really underwritten by the pace of change. Um, the more change you think there's going to be in the world, I think the more attractive growth investing becomes. Um, the more change there is, the more possibility there is for new business models, new ways of doing things, um, uh, and, and creating and disrupting new and old industries. Um, 
that, that to me is really the attraction. And I think the real attraction is some of the things we've talked about of um, that broadening out of exponential change beyond retail media and advertising to a broader range of industries, whether it's healthcare, food, or transportation, or the exponential cost declines we're seeing in battery and solar technology. Um, I, th I think those really determine our opportunity set and our um, return potential um, far more directly and far better. And frankly, I think um, you know, we're spoiled for choice. Um, but the last 20 years have been about consumer internet. I think the next 20 years, the opportunity set's a lot broader and a lot more impactful to humanity. That's great. Thank you very much for joining us today, Lawrence. Great. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to learn more about the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, please visit fundcaliber.com. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at your time of listening. <laughs>